welcome to TechNag, a podcast where we have conversations with different people doing research or activism in relation to social movements, gender, sexualities, and digital technologies. My name is Nadia. And my name is Honor. Hello, everyone. Uh, today we are joined by Adi Kuntzman, who is a senior lecturer in digital politics and coordinator of a master's program at International Relations and Global Communication at Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK. Uh, Adi has been publishing uh, on the issues of gender, sexuality, migration, violence and collective memory, which makes uh, it a very interesting for our group and uh, we are looking forward for this discussion today. Welcome, Adi, and thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, well, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your research interests, uh, all these things? Okay, well, I'll try to keep it short. Uh, I've been researching well all the issues that you have outlined, but also all of the rest of the prism of the internet and digital cultures mm-hmm. for about almost 15 years now. And looking back, I think I've been following the internet as it has developed. So it went from um, it went from online forums, chat rooms, web websites and kind of non-interactive materials, kind of citizen web production mm-hmm. to blogs, to blogs that were linked into a social network, to social networking sites. And as I was evolving with my own work, all this kind of what we have today is kind of social media environment has grown really, really rapidly. So I feel like I've I've been researching it from fairly early days. So while I don't have much technological knowledge, but I feel like ethnographically I followed, I followed that. And I've covered a scarily broad number of issues from I've started um, researching in um, minority queer and minority ethnic community and kind of how it builds itself online to issues of online violence, Islamophobia, homophobia, racism to digital militarization of social media platforms by armies and and, um, states and not just civilians, to then um, issues such as various forms of social media protests, such as selfie protests, Mm -hmm. to more recently, kind of my most recent work um, is about, rather than looking at the digital, is about asking questions whether we can remove ourselves from the digital. So whether it's a citizen's right to refuse, Mm -hmm. to not participate, to not be part (coughs) of a database, to opt out, and paired with that is also my very, very recent work is on the environmental kind of material implications of the digital, but motivated by the que- by this question of do we actually need that much of digital stuff, both in terms of civilian citizen rights, but also in terms of the material environmental impact, which is tremendous and which is not being talked about, of digital communication. So that's Thank you. Thank you very much. So in our previous episode, we were discussing some things in relation to algorithms and the people behind them. Adi, to put it in context here, last time we talked about how algorithms per se are not the responsible of all the bad things, quote unquote, but rather the people that create these algorithms that come with their own biases. So what do you think of this? Wow, that's a huge topic <laughs> and actually probably the least close to my expertise because I need to be very honest, my, I don't have much technical expertise, so my expertise is social. I wouldn't say that there is some, that algorithms are kind of those living beings that have bad intentions. It is totally about those who design them 
the issue, however, is that we tend to see technology and algorithms as the latest kind of incarnation as neutral. It's been designed to do stuff. So once it's been designed to do stuff, we kind of delegate responsibility to it. So we don't animate it as we don't think it's it's a living being, but we we think, you know, like we say, the computer did something. So the algorithm did something. And it makes it really difficult for us to look at the biases, which are not accidental. So I think we, it's easier to accept an accidental error, an aberration, rather than something that is built in into the system of algorithms that design. So there's a beautiful book, which I'm sure you know about, Algorithms of Oppression by Safia Noble, who talks about how um, racist and gender discrimination and violence is built into what algorithms do. So I won't lecture on that because that's kind of, you know, that's a book, an absolute must to read. But I will talk about something that actually I was just reading today. Uh, very recently, a case of um, um, London-based researcher, Yael Weissman, who is the um, forensic anthropologist, forensic, forensic architect and the lead of a kind of independent academic lab that uses architectural knowledge and forensic architecture to fight injustice. So like they look at how armies control population vertically, right, through or through built in architecture. So anyway, so he uh, was on his way to the US, with, where he has vid visited many times um, to an opening of an exhibition. And he got a message the day before boarding the plane that he was, um, his visa was rejected and he was not allowed to go. And he was when he then went to the embassy and he was told that um, the algorithm flagged him either based on the combi on the based on the places that he had visited or his contacts or a combination of the above and we do not know what that is mm -hmm. and then they offered him and i'll explain why i'm bringing this as an example and then they offered him to provide the you know the uh, the visa people provide them with details of all the people he talked to his contacts which he refused to do and therefore didn't go and he issued a statement um, explaining all that. So that kind of gives us, this is a really good example. It's obviously one of many because algorithms are used uh, by police, they're used by government, but it's one example of many where we've got um, algorithms are being used by state and police power for surveillance and it's kind of at the same time, so they're, they're adopted into using these forms of governmentality, but they're black boxed at the same time. So that's one of the things that Safia Nobles write about is how to unblack box an algorithm. So we don't know what it is, but the mm -hmm. algorithm flagged you. And I think this is, so to me, the question, rather than saying, you know, is it the bad uh, computer people who did it? Is it the bad algorithm? I think we need to look at what our real growing increasing reliance on algorithm actually does and we need to start looking in various spheres what it would actually do and who it affects and how it affects us unevenly so yes we are all being surveyed and determined by digital technologies and then kind of our behavior is predicted by algorithms but we're also incre in incredibly uneven in the face of it so you could be predicting your consumer behavior which annoying but whatever versus being racially profiled versus being ethnically profiled mm -hmm. and as a result i mean it could be from as benign as as kind of targeted advertising to as extreme as denial of borders, denial of movement, or even targeting you with a drone, mm. right? So for now, drone strikes are targeted with facial recognition of a specific person, but why not? And I fear that this is actually the future. Why not, you know, the same 
same algorithmic selection that picks up people with this uh, under suspicion of terrorism which is very clear religious and racial profiling rather than anything else so next stage will be shooting so again to me is the question of you know don't blame blame computers themselves but it is what what how they're designed and how they're implemented and how while doing that we black box that process and say well but the computer said but the algorithm flagged and that kind of removes all responsibility and as i was thinking about this example i even made a note it occurred to me that it takes us back to the history of bureaucracy in the in service of totalitarian regimes right Mm -hmm. so it was just so I'm, i'm thinking from from nazi germany Mm-hmm. to the Soviet Union, to a range of totalitarian and genocidal regimes where, but it's been flagged. So mm-hmm. it's, it is a kind of blind following the rules mm-hmm. or following the definition. So to me, this is something very similar, very new in terms of technology, yes. but very similar in that sense. Yes. Kind yes, of like yes. s- mm-hmm. saying, like, for example, in, in relation to the past, for example, like the things that you were saying like in, in Nazism and all these things. Oh, it's the system that flagged yes. you. It's, yeah. the, it's the yeah. system like a yeah. black box, exactly. right? Yes. Exactly. In the, same, in the same sense, then we're black boxing algorithms yes. and like leaving it like the people that made these algorithms came with all their prejudices mm-hmm. and all these things exactly. and build this. Yeah. And then yeah. they are just saying, oh, but like algorithms did it yes. This is, uh, yes. uh, whatever yeah. blame the system like yeah. and blame it gives so system. much yeah. uh, arbitrary power yeah. to the surveillance yeah. systems that yeah. we are not aware of yeah yeah and this is maybe like connected to neoliberal condition we are in now with our, mm. where our consumer identity is actually so much also uh, reshaping our political identity absolutely so yes do you have any more thoughts on that well i've got Tons of thoughts, you know, we only have so much time. But I mean, one thing that we could think of is whether it's just the neoliberal condition or whether actually the neoliberalism is masking something else, which is genocidal racial regimes. Mm-hmm. Because because consumer culture is so prevalent, it's again black boxes and masks other things. And because those of us who are kind of free uh, or more, more, more privileged with the use of these technologies, so we see them mostly on the consumer side. And I think what we don't realize, there's kind of interesting relation between, first of all, military technologies being adopted into civilian use, and then back. So then civilian use is being militarized. It's a kind of a circular movement. So if we have we have drones, right, which were yeah. developed as a weapon, mm-hmm. but they also deliver Amazon packages. Yeah. So we've got, uh, there was a, a French philosopher, Paul Verrilli, who called it civil civilizing military technology so and the internet basically is one beautiful example was developed as a military network and then it's being civilianized and we forget the history but then there is also things that are mundane and everyday like social media which was developed for people to talk to family members and i don't know self-promotion on instagram via you know the crazy amount of pictures of our food and kind of it's about the everyday moment the banal the normal the boring the routine which then is militarized into something. So that's kind of, that's the work that I've done on, on um, in the book Digital Militarism that I wrote with Rebecca Stein, where we looked at how Facebook in particular, and it was over a decade ago. So these things have changed. In the meantime, we've got our fake news, we've got our Cambridge Analytica, our social media propaganda. That was before it, where Facebook, which was the place for people to share the banal, was then adopted by state players mm-hmm. using the same vernacular language of the banal so the state pretends to be a person Mm. and then a military machine and a settler colonial militarized to the teeth occupation becomes this fluffy 
person. So when they speak the language of kind of this personalized everyday, I think so much has changed since. So now we've got tweeting politicians and fake news and, you know, you name it, elections and referendum, which are affected by, again, algorithmic kind of swaying of opinion. Mm-hmm. But it is. it was also a really interesting example, a scary example of how things develop for the everyday. And of course, with the commercial interest in mind. So it's not that social media platforms care about our food or our pets. They care about income generation based on advertising. But then again, it kind of masks various powers. Yeah, definitely. So in that sense, can we talk about algorithmic politics? I think we should. I think, I mean, I think today we cannot not talk about algorithmic politics. And it doesn't mean to say that all politics are fake news or everything. We, I mean, we're not blind. We're not fully. I, one thing we need to remember: we're not fully passive mm-hmm. in the face of technology. You know, we're also agents. We active. We adapt. And an example of a state adapting it is one. An example of, of citizen resisting is another. So we don't just take it as it is. Mm-hmm. We could, but we mo- mostly don't. But it is about how algorithmic governance is affecting everything and it could be to our benefit it could be to our disadvantage so it could be i still remember the early days of when i mean i think it may be still prevalent today where people are trying to work the algorithm so so say 10 years ago how do you make a hashtag trend you just mm-hmm. call everyone and you know make everyone post and use the hashtag <laughs> and then it's going to trend yeah. and now we laugh at it as something almost naive because we yes. now know that you have that you can pay yeah. for for something to you know to float up or it can even be done with an order from above you know with a corporate or state <coughs> right but kind of those early days where you 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 know the visibility of stuff online is determined by kind of social media popularity. Mm. Mm. So you flood it to kind of bring it up. That is now gone, but something else is in place. So I think, you know, we also have the endless capacity to resist one way or another. But I, I do agree. I, I think we need to think about politics that are informed by algorithms. Yeah. One yes. way or another. Definitely. I think in that sense, especially states are very slow in relation to technology. Like technology always mm. goes faster mm. than than gov like yeah governments can respond to these kinds of new paradigms right so um for example this happened with a few years back in in the video game industry something called the gamergate happened mm-hmm. and this was basically a harassment campaign against some uh, particular especially women developers of video games oh. and some some of these persons but particularly one she got harassed so much and she like there was no legislation for mm-hmm. all the <laughs> threats all the things that she had you know mastered that and in that sense she went to you know the government and says like listen i have proof that uh. i am being bullied and being harassed i am in my life my physical life is in danger because i have been doxxed you know my, my personal address has been published and i've been having people on the streets like all these things terrible and the the response of the government was like but we don't have legislation for that like what 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 are these tweets what what is this what is twitter you know and and this was a few years back but now we can see still things like that i mean it took a while but now um i think in the u.s they have 
I think one legislation that says something about Twitter and something about social media. But th this is not the case for all the governments. Mm -hmm. So we see now if you get cyber bullied, and this is something, for example, in Colombia, mm -hmm. um, recently um, a male that was, uh, who was doing bad stuff, he uh, got cyber bullied and committed suicide. This okay. is horrible, mm -hmm. but there's no legislation yes, to uh, say, oh, let's, we can stop this. You yes. know, this mm. is this yes. is not okay. It, it, it feels like when it comes to surveillance, the states are very quick in it's adapting. Kind of but yes. when it comes to protecting human rights, they are very slow. Or human isn't rights. It? I was <laughs> like just going to say that. I mean, yeah. I thought like as you were talking, I was thinking mm. exactly about what you said and I made a note of it's not that there is that legislation is generally slow. It's just slow to protect the vulnerable because oh. exactly yeah. like you say, so when yeah. we, you know, I mean, if you think about the use of, of uh, digital technologies for policing, they're not slow at all. So if you, you know, or, or when, when um, state, and I think Russia was among the first, now kind of the rest follow definitely Britain, definitely the US, arresting people based on what they post on social media, right? So yeah. there is no, massive lag there was no and it's kind of, i think then so when you put the two together the difference is striking so you've got a person who has a, basically a full dossier or full proof mm -hmm. and all you actually need is um i agree that legislation itself kind of law develops slower so all you need is to translate and it's you know it's a question for lawyers right which is actually very similar to you know some religious legislators where you say we've got rules from the old days now we need to define new phenomena and basically include this into the definition of yeah. threat, bullying, whatever it is, right? And, and it's actually very easy to do. But they're very fast when you can include this stuff as a definition of anti-state, incitement to violence, terrorism. So I think we need to, again, we need to look at this disparity of speeds where things move way too fast. Yeah. So now, and kind of those, those who are more vulnerable have long known it. I think the rest of us are catching up. So people from racialized, minoritized, mm -hmm. migrant groups and activists have known for a very long time that say whatever they write on social media is under surveillance. I mean, you ask most Muslim people in, in the UK, they say, we know, you know, we self-censor in terms of what we write because under PREVENT, which is the UK legisl anti-terror legislation, basically, you know, any innocent thing paired with your um, demographic targeting yeah. could lead to from arrest to you name it. So it's that disparity mm. and that disparity when when things move really fast and when the legislation refuses to catch up. And I think corporate interests there are also at play. So another example would be, which is less political, but the example of um, the digital estate, the digital ownership or digital assets, they're called. So all the things that we have online you know, whether it's access to our accounts, whether it's our social media, basically everything. Say, you know, what will happen to all our digital stuff when we die? Like who will have access to it? Who can modify it? Will this content live forever? Can mm. our loved ones see it? So there is now newer development within law to expand kind of stuff around assets, ownership, wills into digital domains. Mm. Because it's driven by monetary interest, this will move faster than protecting people who are the bullet. You're right. Yes. Yes. And I actually from here, I would like to move to discussion to the 
rights of the subject, uh, the political subject, and uh, when it comes to participatory politics, uh, because you have a strong emphasis on digital politics in your research, and I want to ask, how do you think digital technologies affect today's participatory politics? Is it uh, just being used to slacktivism, like passive activism, mm. or is it something more than that? Wow, that's a huge question <laughs> for another couple of hours. I'll just put kind of a couple of random thoughts. I mm -hmm. think on one hand, no, we shouldn't dismiss what we've seen in the last decade, you know, starting from the Arab Spring and then mass of online protests where the internet and social media have been incredibly empowering. So we can't just throw the baby with the water and say, this doesn't matter, it's, you know, it's mm -hmm. just slacktivism or it's just clicktivism or, mm -hmm. or Twitter activism because people have been doing social media stuff and they've also been going out to the streets yes. as a result of social media. And I think also the vast difference, I think to me the, one of the interesting things is that things t tend to look very similar, but they're actually very different internationally. So we see a bunch of people doing a hashtag action and then they go on the streets. Yes. So it looks very similar. You look at Hong Kong, you look at Russia, you look at the US, look at the Middle East, they all look the same. But they're actually not. So the system, the cultural systems are different, the system of governance are different, who is participating, whether it has opened doors to a different demographic of participation. For example, whether, you know, say more women or different in terms of age, different in terms of ability, which not that many people talk about, or is it reproducing the existing patterns? Right. So if we, we do have activism, but it's mostly, say, young, single, mostly men, almost all from dominant ethnic groups, almost always able-bodied. Is that the same, kind of, is the same thing happening online? Mm -hmm. So I would kind of look at that rather than saying there's been a growth of participation or that there's been slacktivism. Another thing that we need to look at is that these things are constantly changing, but also people's ability to resist is changing. So whether it's doing, constantly doing things differently, so it used to be more and more visibility. I think people today are a lot more cautious and a lot more activists are using alternative forms of communication. So it used to be that you would post on Facebook and you'll confirm, you know, you do a Facebook event and you confirm your participation. Basically, you've just given the police a list of people going there. Thank you very much, you know, without. <laughs> yeah. So I think now there's a lot more awareness and there are different alternative ways of doing it, which again, depend on the context, depend on local system, local forms of governance. So I think the impact has been huge. Another thing that I, I worked on that you know you, you, you probably want to know about is mm -hmm. the use of selfies and more broadly the use of the visual, yes. which is another huge topic, but I'll, I'll kind of put it here on the table with, rega with relation to participatory cultures. Because social media has moved to become incre incredibly and increasingly visual, mm -hmm. our participation is also very visual. So it kind of has the, all the history of, you know, where you were dependent on journalists, so you had to be seen, you had to be photographed. Now it's kind of all Web 3 or Web 4, we photograph ourselves. So we've got parallel development of the kind of me-centered, self-promotion, narcissistic, if you like, mm -hmm. culture of Instagram and, and the selfies. And then you've got the exactly same modes of visibility being used for activism. So selfie activism or selfie citizenship is one of those where you basically have, you can't see it on the podcast, but it's a person with a piece of paper, mm -hmm. hashtag and a message, and you take a selfie of yourself with a message. And you could say, ah, it's just a selfie, you know, we all take selfies. And in some contexts it is. So some celebrities, mm -hmm. absolutely, 
joining this because it's just another way of promoting yourself. Ah. So if it means let's put a hashtag on whatever down with something or bring someone back or get someone away, sure thing we'll do it. But we also, and we heard it today in, in today's keynote, we shouldn't underestimate the, depending on the context, the enormous courage it takes to make yourself visible and say, yeah, this is me, as me, and we are identifiable now. This is me, and I express my opinion. And rather than being invisibilized, either as a particular group, ethnic or racial or religious, mm -hmm. or as someone who is expected to be supportive of their government and saying, no, actually, we're not. So we're here. We're being. But it's really, really tricky because with the rise of selfie activism, it, another thing that developed at the same time is biometrics and facial recognition. Mm -hmm. So when the rise of, I mean, I think I mean, selfies are, as a kind of trendy phenomenon is coming to being a decade old, eight, eight years old, you know, entered the Oxford Dictionary in 2013, so seven, eight years old as the thing. Now everybody knows what's a selfie, everybody takes a selfie, selfies are used to be identified. So we kind of have this, and there was a massive excitement about the use of selfies in the range of arenas. But what was creeping up in the meantime is facial recognition, yeah. which I think, again, today, the last maybe year or two, is on everyone's mind. So we're more aware. When I was working on, on selfie activism, most people weren't aware. And not just the academics who, who did this work, but generally, I think there was less awareness. That basically, every time you post your, 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 you post your selfie, you also so you contribute to the growth of a facial recognition database. And Facebook has gone one of the largest. And it's a system, again, we don't want to anthropomorphize it, but it is a system that's learning. So the more images of yourself are there, the easier it is to recognize. And lo and behold, this year we've got governments in several countries around the globe which are using blanket facial recognition on crowds yeah. to do stuff, yes. whether it's Absolutely. demonstrations, uh, Met Police in the UK is doing it. So here we go. So it's kind of, and I and I, th I kind of now, when I think back to your question of participatory culture, we need to look at what would be the next step for digitally informed or in dialogue with the digital mm -hmm. participatory culture, citizen protest, how will look next? We don't know. Mm -hmm. One of them is the rise of using makeup and hairdo that protects your face from facial recognition cameras. It is prominent among some activists in some countries where your face is unrecognizable, unreadable as a face. Mm. So it's kind of geometric, black and white, and with hair. Maybe that. Or maybe, you know, parallel to slacktivism will become a new form of fashion. Mm. We don't know. Maybe yeah. the next activism will be... I kind of see if I have to characterize the type of citizen participation and activism today in relation to the digital, I would say that two two ways or two main categories. One is to engage more with digital tools, better, faster. So like you said earlier, you know, to preempt the next move and do mm. it faster. It could be hacking, hacktivism, hacktivism as a form of electronic civil disobedience. So that's one direction. Or confusing the algorithm by doing erratic, seemingly erratic behavior. Yeah. Another one, which I keep thinking about, is actually withdrawing from the digital. Mm -hmm. And it's anything <laughs> from VPN to protect your, or kind of any other forms of, of technologically informed self-protection from surveillance so your location isn't detected. I mean, it's also basic digital literacy, you know, in terms of your geolocation or what you share, but it's also more advanced ways of removing yourself 
from kind of removing yourself from being part of the database to maybe just moving to completely non-digital forms of, of participation. If we look into science fiction, we'll see that they're already, you know, yeah. you have fur, yes. you have mm-hmm. fur, so, we, and this is, ca- so it's not new, right? Mm-hmm. We know that any digital trace is a trace and you'll be found. So yeah. what mm-hmm. would be an alternative? Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. And also, I believe that, like, when we talk about surveillance and, uh, yeah, and all these things, I would say that, like you said, some years back, um, people were not so aware of these things. But now, even uh, your phone is asking you to unlock your phone with your face, with your fingerprints. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is, okay, this is uh, something, um, but (laughs) many engineers, as me, or most, I would say, we avoid putting anything in this because we actually know how it works. <laughs> We're like, listen. But I've I've have had this uh, conversation with some friends that are not engineers, and they're like, oh, but it's so easy to do it. I'm like, yeah, but you're giving your ID. You know, you're yeah. giving your everything, your your fingerprint all the time, and they're like, oh, but they're going to find it anyway. And it's like, yes, but I'm. Well, my thing them. is, if they want to find me. For example, if uh, the government want to find me, I would, <laughs> for me, it's like, listen, you have to do more, like two more clicks to find me rather than I'm giving you everything. So that is another thing Absolutely. also, like people being aware, but not aware. Like, oh yeah, I'm aware that this is a thing, but that, um, uh, but it's so easy. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So I don't, I don't. Yeah. Maybe it's not a question, but like, it's just a comment on on, on what you were you know, what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, and also this uh, is showing this maybe the blurring lines between our digital and physical forms of, let's say, citizenship. You know, then it is. Uh, I want to actually ask uh, in this case. Uh, do you think it would be uh, because this ongoing surveillance in digital platforms is affecting our very bodies in many ways, especially when it comes to more authoritarian contexts and people are, who are living under oppressive governments? And do you think this creates kind of a new form of digital divide? Because when you put yourself on social media on for political reasons, in certain contexts you are even in more danger now. Absolutely. I mean, I, it's kind of... I think we need to think more carefully and more thoroughly mm-hmm. about the difference between more totalitarian and less totalitarian yes. um, regimes simply because some of the so-called less mm-hmm. totalitarian or so-called democratic, I mean, like the US or the UK, yes. they're actually not. Mm-hmm. So there are on so many ways, on so many ways. So it, or maybe they're partial democracies for some. Mm-hmm. S- and also they're very, highly consumer society so it could be that a kind of lacks of freedom or incredible incredibly strong forms of governance that don't affect everyone right so they affect only some racialized communities only mm-hmm. immigrants only non-citizens but as long as you're white and citizen and middle class you're safe so but let us not confuse this with everyone but because these are often also the people who do the laws and who do the engineering and who do the research and development and who own the digital industry, there is this beautiful illusion that this is a more democratic form of digital existence. Mm -hmm. 
beautifully disguised by consumer culture and convenience. I mean, one of the things that we always, I always talk with my students about is this kind of tension between convenience and scary creepiness of the digital. But because it's so convenient, so yes, you are giving away your fingerprints, but the headache of remembering 15 passwords, and one day you're gonna say, you know what the hell with it? I am gonna give the, my fingerprint because I don't care. Yeah. The, e- the easiness of, so if you take Uber, basically your movements and it's not like we're doing anything bad we're just taking a taxi from school to work to the shops but you're giving and there's a full history of however long you've been using uber of every single move connected to other things on your phone but it's exhausting to not being able to find a cash machine to pay the taxi or not know who's a taxi driver so we give up and give away so many of our freedoms sometimes out of convenience but that's part of the problem the bigger side of the problem is that we have to give them up because we don't have any other choice and that's where kind of social difference and injustice come in so say if you're in the uk if you're a job seeker and you're receiving a job seeker allowance you have to prove that you're searching for a job and the proof is digital yeah so you can't say oh i went around the shops and knocked on doors you have to show a digital trail mm-hmm. of or else right and there are so many other cases if you come as a migrant on any form of migrant visa of any kind first of all you have to have a biometric card so you buy you have to surrender your biometrics you don't yes. have any other choice yeah. and you have to surrender a lot of other things mm-hmm. and you simply so there is so a kind of more about times when there isn't a choice so you would would have loved to have not been able to or had the, the had the opportunity to not give away your data and your body data your biometrics and your movements but you can't mm. because you have to i mean and this is kind of the spectrum all the way the spectrum from the entirely free to the you know say um people on house arrest or people who are released from prison who have got an anklet. So we kind of, all of us have a form of anklet. It's just the kind of the space of freedom is bigger. But the reason I'm, I'm comp- thinking about this in relation to more totalitarian states, mm-hmm. when I, I, I grew up in Russia, so you know I have a kind of really good sense, I think, of how different, even when they look the same, how different totalitarian or kind of really strong regimes feel. But it also sometimes pe- makes people a lot more digitally literate. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. for example, Russia that bans various platforms regularly, everybody knows how to use a VPN yes. and yeah. go around. Yeah. If I ask my friends and peers and myself included in the UK, and I'm talking about a very privileged group, you know, citizens, educated academics, do we know how to do VPN? Of course not, because we don't need to, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So when you need to, and when kind of on a broader s- scale of the whole state, where you know you're under a lot more surveillance, you actually develop much better skills, yeah. mm-hmm. which are kind of f- familiar to me as someone who grew up in the Soviet Union. You grow up with skills of protection and, and detection. So, you know, today we talk about fake news and people are surprised, oh my God, how come fake news and algorithms and Facebook lied to us? When you grow up in a country where you know you can't believe the newspapers ever, mm-hmm. yeah. We never believed in what's in the newspaper. Yeah. Nor did we ever believe in the state that's going to come and protect us or the police person who's going to come and protect us because they didn't. They would come and arrest you and send you to the gulag. So it, you kind of have a completely different mindset and disposition of what you actually do with what is at your disposal. That said, of course, there are differences between. So I'm not conflating all countries in one. There are countries mm-hmm. where the surveillance is much stronger. Mm-hmm. The control over citizen movement is much stronger. And yes, all of it at the moment is based on digital technologies of various kinds. Kind of like is um, the the people that has been 
in the minorities or even not the minority because for example women are not a minority but then we get some skills mm-hmm. by yeah. by doing this yeah. you know yeah by having to circumvent yeah. some exactly. things exactly mm-hmm. yeah yes maybe it goes in line with this uh, statement of where there is oppression there is resistance yeah so when yeah. there is digital oppression yeah. then you there form your di- digital yeah. forms of yeah. resistance yeah. like using vpns yeah. or taking different measures yeah. hiding your identity yeah yes so maybe it's a new also like different forms of political participations are created absolutely absolutely so that's an important point actually so political participation isn't just voting or demonstrating there are endless ways in which we politically participate Mm -hmm. and some of them i mean my endless frustration with western scholarship on political participation is it only sees particular things as meaning of political participation or political activism yes yeah yes and uh, i would like to move actually discussion to uh, queer activism and especially uh, when it comes to thinking of the role of digital technologies in mobilizing queer activism and uh, for you like what are the potential challenges especially in forming transnational queer solidarities at digital spaces you know, it's interesting, just before we came to this question, as mm-hmm. we completed the previous one with various models of citizen participation, yes. I was just about to bring an example, pre-digital, so maybe I'll start with that, okay. of reading and misreading queer and LGBT activism in the um, late 80s, early 90s, when the Soviet Union, col- first the, the gates, the doors were open mm-hmm. to Western researchers mm-hmm. and Western activists, and then the Soviet Union has collapsed. And before it became the kind of NGO playground, foreign NGO playground, um, there was some interesting research into Russia's LGBT queer stuff, um, including mostly by American um, journalists and academics, including questions, <coughs> is there LGBT activism in Russia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is this LGBT activism? And there is one book, uh, an ethnography of um, an American scholar. I think she has some roots, uh, kind of some of her family heritage from Russia, but she's an American scholar who spent some time as an ethnographer living in Russia and kind of researching those circles in the very, very early days of coming from the underground. Of course, they exist, I mean, they existed quietly and maybe on a much smaller scale in very different ways that would be recognizable in the West. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So people would gather in in houses, like around the kitchen table or in small house parties. Yeah. So there isn't an LGBT club anywhere, but people gather there. Mm-hmm. Men would go and meet in parks. At, there was kind of an informal network of knowing where these parks are. So, so it was there, it just wasn't visible. Yeah. So in her book, she was musing about basically why there isn't, and that was her starting question, why isn't there an LGBT activism with basically very strong mindset that the LGBT activism is this. It's a present of public LGBT spaces, is be people publicly coming out, and all of that. So in the meantime, I mean, it's been over 30 years now, in the meantime, these things have emerged and we can think about whether, I'm coming to your question of transnational solidarity, mm-hmm. but kind of we can think of whether these new forms, you know, when we think about globalization and global mm-hmm. spreads of trends, is it that now we have the space to, to have this LGBT presence or queer presence that looks so recognizable to non, Russian eyes or Western eyes, 
or was it something that was brought by visitors, by the media, by other activists, by NGOs, increasingly, and not just Russia, the rest of the um, Eastern Europe, you know, mm-hmm. former, um, former con- countries of the former Soviet Union, are now these days very much dependent on um, NGO funding. And NGO yes. funding, mostly the one that they use, mostly sits in Europe and often dictates the ways of being. Mm. LGBT or the ways of queer politics mm-hmm. and I'm not saying it's all inauthentic I mean that's kind of that's why I said it kind of goes back to the broader question of globalization we're never just passive in accepting you know other forms of influence we're always in dialogue mm-hmm. but there is this violent form of blindness to what you don't see because you don't expect it because you come with a particular framework in mind and this violence then follows by financial violence, but so-called NGO-industrial complex, where you dictate it to be in a particular way, and that's the only way to receive funding. But again, I think people resist because it's kind of both a field to adopt new ways of being, and I'm not saying if they're different or, quote-unquote, foreign, we shouldn't, right? You learn new ways of being and you embrace them, and it's, it's incredible. Oh. So you've got, you know, for example, trans rights are a lot more visible, mm. so mm. it becomes, it both becomes a language that enables, but it also becomes a language that limits because it erases other forms of living, existing, experiencing, being together, which maybe would come under the uh, umbrella of queer or under the umbrella of trans, but isn't necessarily recognizable in what we see as kind of global, you know, often US-led trans rights. So it's really tricky. And the reason I'm talking about this so much is not only because it links to the kind of previous previous comment in terms of how we think about citizen participation, because to me it links to how do we think about queer citizen participation? Because what do we actually have in mind? Mm. What is the model, and and also the question of transnational solidarity. Mm-hmm. So, what are the models that we expect to happen when we ask how they can happen? Mm-hmm. It's a long answer to say I don't know how transnational solidarities work. Sometimes they work, sometimes they doesn't. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a question of language. Sometimes it's a question of we don't want transnational solidarity. Mm-hmm. I don't, and I mean, and I and I don't, as a you know someone who is queer, but is no longer in Russia, Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Someone who is queer but not an activist at the moment. It's not something I want to speak about you know, on behalf of others, but I see it as I move through those circles of that violent lack of recognition of ways of being and ways of living that don't conform to the model of, of queer activism. That said, there's an incredible, wonderful, thriving and very diverse scene of LGBT and queer activists, and, and also they're defined very differently in different countries. So in some, they use interchangeably, so we just use queer for LGBT. In some, they are in opposition to each other. So they could be, for example, there's beautiful work by um, Olga Plakotnik on Ukrainian queer politics, um, talking about how LG- LGBT is more is a term to describe homonationalist yes. mm. politics, right? Uh-huh. So yes. LGBT as adopting, and that again goes to the question of what forms of activism, what forms of LGBT-ness do we expect? Mm. Those that conform with the state, conf- adopt the state 
national rhetoric, mm -hmm. Mm. adopt certain forms of homonormativity mm -hmm. and homopatriotism and homonationalism mm. versus queer that is defined as an alternative to it, as not just, it's not just about sexuality or a range of non-normative gender queer forms, gen, you know, gendered and sexual forms of being, but also an alternative radical form of politics. But it doesn't work that way in other contexts, because in other contexts, queer has been used mostly in kind of in Euro-America, been used and overused and overused, where queer means white and queer means Western. Yeah. And it says that it's supposed to encompass all the other categories which are not LGBT, but it doesn't. So bef to me then, before we think about what kind of transnational solidarities we actually need to think really carefully about what do we mean by, by the solidarity and who's going to be in solidarity with whom, right? So mm -hmm. is it going to be, like, is it going to be um, a homo-nationalist or queer homo-patriots across countries that are going to unite yes. in the fact that military is the ultimate queer way of belonging because mm. soldiers are so sexy, but also because we can be sexy and we can also fight and we can kill all the enemies. And that could be a form of transnational solidarity, which we actually should call global right wing, uh, alt white. Yeah. Right. So I, I, and I think also because the digital domain, the internet, social media is so widespread and so yeah. amorphic and so there is a lot of mimicking going on. So we see a a, a lot of rise of forms of violence, white supremacy, yes, nationalism, exactly. which mimics tactics and forms of presentation of anti-state, anti-racist, anti-settler colonial activists. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So there is mm. very easy to mix, and, and there is, it's also strategic because you deliberately uh, adopt the tactics of those who you want to fight. It's not just about kind of stealing the hashtag, it's actually adopting the whole presentation. So then, in this field, right, so how do we then, how, and uh, it's an open question for me, how do we, can we create an, another form of queer solidarity? They won't necessarily be homo-nationalist. Mm. They won't necessarily be about queerness, that's white supremacy. How would it look like? Mm -hmm. Because once you get transnational solidarities, you know, things can start falling apart really quickly. Mm -hmm. So is, you know, people from the West, the so-called first world, or so-called second world, Eastern mm. Europe, you know, which is not the first world, but it's a white second world traveling, say, to the Middle East yeah. as a form mm. of transnational solidarity mm. to teach people how to be queer, right? Yes. So <laughs> it's really, really tricky. And I think the more we leave it as an open question, yeah. with kind of always checking with ourselves, probably the better place we're going to yes. be in. Yes. And so also, oh, yeah. sorry, sorry. Okay. Uh, so maybe like to uh, to connect is do you think like because when we think of homonormativity which is so much embedded in uh, global gay culture where white gay men are so in the forefront and which is very uh, actually consumer based culture in many ways so where LGBT people are targeted as consumer groups and and in the meantime also we have a more homonationalist uh, culture which is building queer hierarchies mm -hmm. between different groups of queer people mm -hmm. and uh, do you think this this can like these will be working together uh, in forming this hegemonic understanding of uh, let's say lgbtq uh, in digital spaces i think it already is it i mean is. i think mm -hmm. it's a given i think this has already happened yes. has been happening has already happened but also when we talk about 
the digital space, it's actually many different spaces. Yes. So maybe what we need to think about, going back to what we discussed in the seminar earlier and in the earlier questions about Gamergate or about online violence, maybe we should look at, rather than seeing the digital as this one space, we need to look at the form of, not just hierarchies, but also the forms of violence, mm. a range of violences that are happening digitally. Yeah. So it could be online abuse, talking, it could be many other things. It could be hacking and destruction. It could be so, because so much of this presence is now online, it's a kind of new battlefield. So we need to look at in how, what kind of shapes these hier hierarchies take. Yes, yes. And maybe we can see then that the digital spaces as this antagonistic space is also between these different readings of the digital space and different, mm -hmm. uh, how do you say, uh, groups where people are also uh, you know, forming more queer, inclusively queer solidarities between a different context, but also we still have these kind of hegemonic interventions on these spaces from uh, capitalist and oh yeah. Also, yeah, racialized, uh, let's say, spaces. I think we need to really hold the capitalist and corporate mm -hmm. in mind. I mean, when we when we were talking about global gay culture, I was thinking on one hand, um, dating apps and dating yeah. sites, which as we know, are absolutely full of racial stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And people who openly put their racism out there on display, I'll like say that, you know, no, um, people that they're, they're not interested in. So we have that. And then we've got community spaces, which by the way, are not necessarily safe heavens. They're often full mm -hmm. of fights and flame wars and removing parts of the community and silencing marginalized voices. So, I mean, I've always thought about the digital as a battlefield rather than mm -hmm. as anything else. Anything else is kind of a, you know, a, a, a welcome, unexpected gift. Yes. By definition, this is a place of fighting. And then, you know, and kind of recent cyber stalking, cyber bullying, and kind of social media mobbing is only the latest incarnation of all the forms. It just, and, but, and then we need to think about how they're magnified. To say if it's a Twitter mobbing of someone, it's on a massive scale. Yeah. And we also need to think about how this is basically a kind of spectacle that's unfolding in the eyes of everyone. Because when people fight, you you know, you target someone and you think in your closed battlefield arena, but actually any, anyone can read it. Yeah. And what are the implications of that? And if we pair that with surveillance, data mm -hmm. aggregation, I mean, it can get us to all kind of interesting places. Yeah, definitely. I, I wanted to uh, go back a little bit. When you were uh, talking about uh, queer, uh, like the the word kind of like sounded to me when uh, sometimes you say uh, women. Like, is every woman the same? There's no intersections in it. There's like, oh yeah, all women have like have the same things, right? Mm -hmm. It's like no, no we're no. like a super vast, really big group with different interests different races, different everything. And it kind of like sounded that sometimes, uh, uh, like I think queer, or like the word queer can also be embodied this one type of queer, right? Um, might be white, Western, right? Um, maybe yeah, male. Young, young, able-bodied. Maybe able-bodied, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, it kind of like misses all these other yes. uh, intersections that it, it might also can, I'm not sure if this is going to be, um, you know, investigated in in recent or in this years, but oh. I think it, it can also be something to check on, right? Like when we talk about, 
queer culture or queer something who are we referring to mm-hmm. like are we referring to only western queer only yes. black like only who are we referring and i think it would be nice if we just kind of like take this word as um like with uh, <laughs> i don't know how to say it uh, like with very careful yeah, uh, way like in a very careful mm-hmm. way being like so i'm going to use this word and i'm going to explain like what type of group i am referring to absolutely absolutely, absolutely. other other yeah. than yeah just yeah yeah mm-hmm. just just a thought but yeah yeah it's just mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so i think uh we're we're, we're running out of time yes <laughs> yes we are running out of time but uh, it was such an interesting conversation yes. we had so and thank fun. you so much for joining us today Adi, in your tight schedule and for also sharing your knowledge and opinions with us so yes thank you and thank you both so much the questions were absolutely amazing thank you you so much for coming joining us and everything thanks thank you for listening to this episode we hope you liked it you can find us on apple Podcasts, spotify and google Podcasts. you can follow us on facebook to learn about our activities other updates and give us feedback TechNet was brought to you by the University of Gothenburg under research cluster TechNet. See you next time.